0: Good morning. Our scripture reading from today is from the book of James. James two, verse fourteen to twenty-six. On the pew Bible, it is on page eleven ninety-seven. One one nine seven. Faith and deeds. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself. If it is not accompanied by action, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish men, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's the word of God.
1: Thanks, Eric. When I was six years old, and I had learned how to ride a bike, I didn't have any of those cool things in the spokes that went around or anything like that, or tassels on the handles. But I could get around pretty well. Uh, unfortunately, the only thing I'd been exposed to, if some of you grew up with bikes that just pedaled backwards to brake. Um, I don't know if they make those anymore. I, I don't, if they do or don't, I don't know. But that's what I grew up with. So when I was tooling around, I wanted to break, I would just go backwards. And we happened to live on a street at the time that went downhill. I can still picture it. And at the end of it, it would tee. So you had to go left or right. And there was a, there was a gutter. In front. So you get down to the end, get some speed, have to brake and turn to avoid hitting the curb. And I borrowed somebody else's bike, and their bike had handbrakes, and I didn't know what those things were for. I didn't pay much attention to it. So getting on the bike and going down the hill, building up some speed, and then braking to turn, but just pedaling backwards. That's all I was doing. So I did hit the curb and I did meet my face, which explains so much probably this morning too, actually hit, hit the pavements. And, uh, and it was a pretty gruesome scene. I guess my sister reported to my parents that I was dying. Um, literally, that's what they thought. There was a lot of you know blood (laughs) everywhere and a lot of my teeth have been loosened and that kind of thing as well Uh, I remember seeing some pictures of it still big fat lips and everything like that so bikes are made with brakes for a reason right you uh, it's a great uh, way to get around but if you're not using the brakes as they're supposed to be used it's it's going to be useless you're going to suffer some consequences and James says the exact same thing about faith that it goes along with works it's kind of like a bike with with brakes as well Um, if you don't have if you have only faith intellectual assent but there's no works there's no transformation of life there's no different way of approaching things and it's really it's kind of useless it's it's faith without works is dead that's what he's saying and you know James is so simple in many respects I mean he's saying is your life actually lining up with what you say you believe Are you behaving, are there external behaviors, ways that we can look to say, yeah, you really do believe that because it's affecting the way not only you look at things or relate to people, but the actions that you come along with. We talked about this a little bit last week with our almost Illuminati symbol with the triangle and, you know, what those, those three things, you know, your speech, and your your actions and your thoughts are they all in alignment? And if you're only thinking good things about God, but it never leads to speech that's honoring Him and others, or or, wor- or, or behavior that's honoring Him and others, is it really genuine faith? This is the kind of thing he's asking these people. In, uh, in another another home we lived I lived in too many homes, but. The one that when we lived in Utah in our backyard, there were four trees. There was an apple tree, a pear tree, an apricot tree, and a peach tree. And apples would fall from the apple tree. If I found a peach at the bottom of the apple tree, I didn't think, oh, this apple tree is now growing peaches. I knew somebody had thrown something over there, right? If I take a, a, An apple tree will bear fruit. Apples. Jesus says a tree will be known by its fruit. And he's talking there, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, about people looking at you and saying, are you behaving like somebody who follows Jesus? A tree is known by its fruit. If I go to a peach tree and, and it's, it's got pears on it, that's not right. There's something wrong. It's actually probably a pear tree. And Jesus is saying, when people look at you, what do they see? What kind of fruit are you bearing? James is saying exactly the same thing. Is your life lining up with what you say you believe? And what's interesting about James, if you think about it, he's writing to the scattered tribes of Israel. So here's somebody who's an insider, so to speak. If you would not consider yourself this morning a Christ follower, if you would not align with the label, say, Christian, then you probably have, understandably, some things you look at the church and you scratch your head and you think, that's not right. It doesn't seem to match up. You know, hypocrisy, whatever the case may be. But this is James on the inside, looking at the people and saying, you're not behaving the way you should behave. And he's challenging them. Is it really making a difference in your life? He's pressing mom on on the point. He says, a faith that doesn't lead to action is really no faith at all. And this is the repeated refrain. In verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Do you get the point? I mean, he's repeating this all throughout. And it's a very graphic picture, especially that last one, too, in verse 26, at least for me. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He's taking us to a funeral scene, and there in the coffin is a body. And if you've been to this, you know, you look at that person, you say, that's not really that person. I mean, there's something gone. The spirit's departed. It, it was just a shell. And he says, if your faith isn't accompanied by deeds, that's you in the coffin. That's your faith. It's useless, it's dead. There's no real spirit involved. There's no thriving reality that informs everything you think about and say and do. And there's a disconnect here, and he's challenging people who would gather in a church and say, I'm a follower of Christ, saying, are you really? Then show me your deeds. And he gives some examples, too. His own examples here, as we'll see in a second. I, I remember when I was a, a server uh, um, over in Germany, and then through my seminary days in, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, just to supplement some, some income. I did a couple of other things, but we worked at this historic restaurant. It was all, all brick. It was, it was a great experience, but back in the wait station, if you've ever been a server before, um, we talk, right? You, 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 there's, a, there's a culture back there, and it was great, uh, but one of the things you talk about is tipping because whether you like the system or not, uh, at least at the time, we got very low wage, you know, I don't know, $2 an hour. So most of what I earned was on tips. And I can tell you, and I've said this before to some of you, that one of the things, the, one of the most discouraging activities we'd see people do when they were at our table was pray. You know why? They're terrible tippers. <laughs> I mean, habitually, Christians are bad tippers. I'm just Maybe something has changed. And bring. There's generosity everywhere now, but I'm telling you back in the wait station, guess what? I was a seminary student trained to be a pastor, and I didn't like it when I saw people pray. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. And I'll tell you what. It's at one particular time, such a clear memory of this. This guy ordered you know, a $10 meal or something. He was all, all alone. I went over afterwards. you are cleaning everything up, and there's the tip. On the table it was a $1 bill, which is bad to begin with, in my mind. You know, that doesn't speak generosity. But more than that, when I opened up that $1 bill, it actually wasn't a $1 bill. It was a tract. It was a message saying, Jesus loves you so much that he gave his one and only son. And you can know this true life too, as well. Now, I'm going to tell you what, that did not make me feel like becoming a Christian. I know from that person's perspective, he'd done just done a great work. He was sharing the gospel message with this probably heathen waiter and he felt good about himself. And I did not feel good about him at all. I felt like he was cheap and, you know, I didn't ever want to see him again, you know, and I'm having all these existential crisis inside of myself about what I'd like to happen to that guy because I just served him and this is all I got was a one dollar tr- fake one dollar bill and, and there's a big disconnect there right if I'm not a believer and I was a believer and I say this is what Christians are like they're faking me out by saving me with a one dollar counterfeit bill I think I was interested in the message I wasn't. How would anybody else be? I felt ripped off. And it actually had a counter effect. Right? I mean, it just taught me not to like you all. (laughs) And you or me. And that's not good. And James sees it too. It's bad. So he gives some examples. He says, this is what it looks like. You want to know, okay, you don't believe it, here he says. Here's some examples. Example number one is a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. That's in verses 14 through 17. Look at what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So here we have somebody um, who has a basic need. Faith, he says, leads to acts of compassion and to generosity to people who have needs around you that are evident and obvious. And these are pretty basic needs. I, I need clothing. I need food. I don't have any. Where am I going to go to get it? James says, for those who are gathered together, these scattered tribes who are gathering together in community, if somebody among you is in that position... Then you need to be generous you need to have compassion on them you need to share what you have what's been given to you you know jesus at one point um and you know dave kind of made mention of this passage really why are you worrying god's going to provide for you you know look at look at the look at the beauty of well out here there's no flowers out there but pretend there was flowers around here he says look at those you know god's going to clothe them He's going he's gonna, to he's, he's gonna give you your basic and daily needs. And here's a person here who's a believer and says, I don't have those needs. How are they going to be met? Do you think then uh, that Jesus is just saying, um, that person prays and bling, there's a meal in front of them. No, how is God providing in that, through, through his people, through people who do have those material goods. That's part of what it means to be in community with each other. I think this is one of the compelling reasons in my own mind why you attach yourself to a local body of believers. You know, you start talking about all kinds of issues. Who do we support? How do we support them? Am I supposed to feed everybody and clothe everybody? No, this is a call to the local church and community, the 12 scattered tribes of Israel, to come alongside those in their fellowship. You know, one of the things that City Gospel Mission is great about here in Cincinnati is, you know, there's tremendous needs, but they, they, they're very big on relationship. You need to be in relationship with people because it's not just about meeting material needs. It's, there's something bigger going on, and sometimes if a material need arises, if I'm out of relationship, how can you know what that need really is if it's being met by somebody else? He uses the term brother and sister quite a bit. This is family language. Sheila mentioned it too in the stories of grace. See if we can weave every story of grace into this message. <laughs> Because, you know, we're family. We, we stick with each other. We're, we, we meet each other's needs. That's just what family does. And there's a lot of family in the big C church out there. Are you going to meet every one of their needs? That would be pretty overwhelming. But God doesn't ask you to do that. He says meet the needs of those you're in community with right now. In fellowship, suppose a brother or sister in one of these, you know, gathering communities come in. They, they have no clothing and they have no food. What are you going to do about that? You've got to do something. And I think having that relationship is really helpful. That's why I see the value of a local church walking in community with each other over time. And and James fundamentally is just saying there's an open-handedness that comes with a vibrant faith. You know, there's no doubt about it when you're generous like that and and meeting each other at points of compassion and opportunities. A brother or a sister without clothes and daily food. That's example one. he has example two. He says, you want to talk about faith and works? Consider this, even the demons believe in God. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Would we say the demons have genuine faith in God? The kind that James is talking about. They walk in intimate fellowship with the God of the universe and have his agenda in mind. <laughs> no. But they know who God is. They can articulate with precision a doctrine about God that some others probably can't. So if you're just saying faith is gauged by your intellectual understanding of who God is, then the demons are in, baby. And I don't think any of us would suggest that's the case. Because there's something missing if our faith is only intellectual assent, understanding who God is. That's not complete faith. It's not the whole picture. It's certainly a part of it. So is intellectual knowledge. Knowing a lot about God is certainly different than knowing God. Um, J.I. Packer's great book, Knowing God, kind of starts with that premise. One of the first books I read, um, really when I was starting on my track of theology, knowing God. And I remember in the very beginning, he says, you can know a lot about God and never know God. It's true of the demons. They know a lot. They don't know God. They're not walking in fellowship with him. Their lives aren't transformed into an action that's seeking to honor God and everything. You know, there's a reason why some people call seminary, what? Cemetery, right? You go there for your faith to die, basically. You go, and why is that? I mean, there's a couple of reasons, but one is because God becomes an intellectual study. And you be, you, you're totally removed then from the wonder and the glory of walking in daily intimacy with him. And the way that translates into action all around you. So you come out with big heads. Usually judgmental about everybody who's not quite as precise in their theology as you are. Ready to dismantle their positions. And in the process, forgetting what it means to love God and to love others. It's cemetery. And then people say that for a reason. Faith can become merely an intellectual exercise. Passion and love for people can die. And in that case, the demons, in a sense, are closer to the kingdom. Kind of a shocking statement. But if you think about it, a seminarian knows about God and puffs up with pride. A demon knows about God and shudders. And that's a more appropriate response. You're coming before a holy God and they know what's going to happen if they cross His path. And people who know a whole bunch can become pretty familiar with God. Have, have all the categories put in a neat little place and this is now what faith looks like. And that's a dangerous place to be. Demons know their place. Oftentimes we do not. And historically the scattered tribes of Israel would be able, if we wanted to, we could come up with a dozen examples of where they started going down that pathway. They would know what he's talking about. Faith has to lead to works. It needs to be aligned with one another. There's a third example here. It's Abraham. And Abraham was considered righteous when he offered his son Isaac. And that's in verses 20 through 24. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Well, what an interesting story here and you're probably familiar with it. There's actually a chronology here that's kind of interesting because Genesis 15:6 where it says God credited Abraham as righteous happened 30 years before he offered his son Isaac uh, on the mountain. So when was Abraham made right with God? When he believed the promises of God in Genesis 15, 6. The promise of God was, you're gonna be a father of many nations. Look up at the stars. Who can count all those? Your ancestors are gonna be even greater than that. And Abraham didn't have a son. He was well advanced in age. This was impossible, but he believed God. And it's his belief that made him right, righteous. That is, right standing before God. And the example, the consequence of that belief came 30 years later when he had an opportunity now to test that faith and in trust, do something that seemed, to me, this is one of the most mysterious passages in the Bible. God grants this son. And he says, now I want you to sacrifice that son. It's completely counterintuitive to the fact that he's going to fulfill his promise. But Abraham had such a faith, he believed God to such an extent that he was willing to do that act. And you may not have seen in Genesis 22 and they're going on up to the top of the mountain and it just slows down so much and you can feel the internal tension inside of Abraham trying to figure out what's going on. And his son Isaac says, hey dad, where's the sacrifice? We got all the wood here. We got a whole bunch of kerosene. You know, it's going to be a pyro fest. I, can, I get it. But what's going up on there? You know, oh, God will provide, you know, whatever. And, and Abraham, we get an internal sense of what he's thinking. He's like, if God asks me to do this, I don't get it. But somehow he must have a plan to raise Isaac from the dead. Because I know this, this is the fulfillment of the promise I, I, I believed in. And it's slow. The scene slows down. And he, he raises the dagger as Isaac is bound. I it's impossible to imagine this scene Son is bound there. It's like, hey, dad, what gives? <laughs> this is not cool. Are you crazy? You know? And, uh, and he's about to bring down the knife when God stops him. And he offers a provision. Um, there's a ram caught in the thicket. He says, now I know. I, I understand your faith. I have seen your faith. Your trust in me. Your intellectual scent has led to an action that's willing to trust me, even when it seems counterintuitive. Your faith has been proven by what you've done. It's been tested and I've seen that it is real. And God, of course, knew inside of his heart what was happening. Nonetheless, he provides a display of obedience. Salvation is by faith alone. We believe that. The Bible is very clear about that. You cannot earn right standing with God. But salvation is also by a faith that is not alone. It's not really... A true faith unless it leads to a certain action and that's what james is saying works can't bring us into relationship with god but they're a necessary product byproduct of that relationship theologians use terms like declarative righteousness and demonstrated righteousness so declarative what i declare what i say is true the foundation for the right status that you have with god is the work of christ That's what's being anticipated when he provides a ram, right? A substitute in a place. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I am the perfect substitute. Once for all, there's nobody who's ever been like me or ever will be like me because I'm perfect in every way. And I'm substituting for you, your imperfection. So Paul says rightly, you're saved. You're made right with God. Just by believing in the work of the perfect sacrifice. You're going to try to do it on your own. You'll never measure up. And if you don't think James believes that, he's just told us in the previous passage. You stumble at one point, you're guilty of all of it. And he's trying to show everybody, you're guilty of all of it. So how are you going to get right with God? He's dealing with the consequences or the product of this declarative righteousness. You're right standing with God, not based on what you do, but Flowing from that, a demonstrated righteousness, the natural byproduct of that genuine faith in Christ. One flows from the other like an underground spring that shows its existence to those looking from the outside because they can see water. Hey, there's water. It must be coming from somewhere. Yeah, it's your broken sump pump. A faith that does not demonstrate its existence through change and growth. It's just counterintuitive and actually it's counterproductive. And James is not saying that you can do enough good works to gain a right status with God. If you stumble at one point, you stumble at all. He is saying that a genuine faith is transformative and at times it's measurable. It does make a difference. And he gives another example here. This is Rahab the final example the prostitute was considered righteous for housing the spies in 25 and 26 in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without deeds is dead you may know that story as God's people were moving into the promised land and uh, they're making some headway but they're supposed to spy out the land and they find refuge in the house of Rahab uh, where they might otherwise not have been able to get the job done that they were given and it's just amazing to me I love how the Bible does this sometimes Abraham this towering man of faith that virtually every world religion accepts as a man of faith um, is, is an example of faith in action and then what's the next example Rahab a prostitute I mean, come on now. Is that really a good example to use? A woman who's a prostitute. God uses both right next to each other. Abraham, this great man of faith, and Rahab, the prostitute, both demonstrating faith. I I love that. God uses everybody. He can use anybody. And they even point out here and elsewhere, too, that she's a prostitute. If faith is earned by works, you think a prostitute's going to be high on the list of people who are in the kingdom? I'm guessing probably not. You might be immediately disqualified. Most people would say that. Yet we read in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's see what, what's access to the kingdom. It's disbelief in God. It's this genuine faith that in her case led to an action that people who in Jesus' day knew a lot about God maybe never actually did. They wouldn't have done that. Put them in Rahab's place and they say, no. I'm not going to sacrifice. My security matters more to me. You know a lot about God and not sacrifice anything for him. Here's a prostitute who knew little and sacrificed everything. It says, look at that if you want to know what faith looks like. You know, we talked before about faith, and I was thinking more about this, and typically when you talk about what is faith in anything, you have to have a certain set of, you have to have facts about what to believe in, right? If you have all this information, but you don't really believe it's true, then you don't have a genuine faith. But if you have information, and you've got the conviction that it's true, is that genuine faith? Not quite yet, because even the demons believe that. They got information about God, and they believe it's true. So what biblical faith looks like is an ongoing, you know, application. There's like this equation here of just kind of adding up to what it looks like. Some of that involves trust, surrendering to Christ, saying not only do I believe this and I'm convicted about it, but I'm walking in trust and that trust is uh, given reality in space and time through the action that you do. I mean, that's just what faith looks like. Those other two pieces Okay, the the plus trust, plus action. We wax and we wane on those things, don't we? But if you never have trust in God, ever, and if there's never any action committed in in this kind of faith, do you have real faith? That's what James is asking and he's given lots of examples. He's pressing it home. The notion that faith does not lead to action, it's ultimately useless. Now let me suggest to you this, um, this thought. If you tend... To rely on your works, religious activities, good things, for salvation, for being right with God. The foundational reality of being saved by grace through faith must be again and again spoken to your soul. You need to remember, you're not saved by how good of a person you are, it's by Jesus only. But if and when faith is turned into only a verbal commitment to certain doctrines, James must be the voice ringing in your ears Faith without works is dead. You need both. Some of you I know are sensitive souls that can leave from something like this and say, I just have to do more. I just have to do more. I haven't measured up. I'm never good enough. If I die right now, I'm going to hell because I said something mean in my mind three days ago. You know, I mean, you're a really sensitive soul. No, you're right standing with God is not based on what you do. It's only on Christ. And some of you, unfortunately this morning, kind of smug in your faith and you're feeling pretty good about yourself and you've forgotten what it means to live it out in real life the sacrifice the humility that god has called you to the opportunities to be to to demonstrate and bear the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness faithfulness goodness gentleness self-control and you need to be shaken up like that initial globe illustration right your faith is up on the shelf it looks kind of nice but it's not, design, it's not doing what it's designed to do. And James wants to shake you up. And I hope you're thinking this morning what the world needs, really, and what I need is Christians who live out their faith instead of just talking about it. You know, the walk, the walk, not just talk the talk. Show me the money type stuff, you know? Really? Isn't that what we all yearn for? I, I, I know what that looks like as a matter of conversation, but come on. Sometimes it's just obvious how we're supposed to be acting. Maybe you think, hey, I'm a person of faith, you know, by God's grace, and running again and again to the foundation of Christ's work, I can vigorously pursue this law that gives freedom and demonstrate to a watching world that Christ is real, that faith really makes a difference. And I, the challenge is for you to think about what that looks like. I, I'll come back to the tip illustration. I can imagine it going down a little differently, right? I can imagine a scenario where this guy bought this $10 meal and I show up to to the table afterwards and there's a $20 bill sitting on that table. Uh, And I thought, this is awesome. And I open up that that $20 bill and it's an actual $20 bill. (laughs) And inside is a little gospel track. You know, it's a $1 gospel. the same gospel track that he'd given me. It's the same information that he left, but it's, it's received a little differently this time, right? And maybe on that little tract that says, you know what, that, I, I've, I've left you a big tip because I serve a generous God. And that generosity is just a reflection of the generosity he gives you in offering Christ as Lord and Savior. My, my guess is that if every single person who prayed before a meal left that at our restaurant, I don't know, just kind of wonder, wonder first, how would people view Christians? And second, how many would be coming to me who they called Preacher Boy to say, tell me more about this? Because these people are acting differently than everybody else. And it's not because they're cheap tippers. <laughs> it's because they're so generous in their giving. And I'm kind of interested in this now. Same act wrapped up a little bit differently. And I'm guessing you have the same thing. You've got a message to share. You know what? It's not going to resonate much unless your life is demonstrating compassion, generosity, things that are kind of different. His faith needs to make sort of a difference. And James is saying, please, people, please, look at the Bible, look at what Jesus himself has done. Lead lives that match up with what you say you believe. Now, here's the good news. We serve a a Savior whose walk matched up with his talk. (laughs) So, So much so, that he laid his life down. So we celebrate this sacrament because he, he was true. He said, I'm the bread of life. And he wasn't just saying that. He said, come to me. You're thirsty, you're hungry, I'll give you life. And I'll lay down my life so that you can understand what that means. In actual space and time, giving of himself. That's what the bread signifies. And he poured out his blood on our behalf. Forgiveness comes at a price. you know, People might die for a good man. What about somebody who doesn't deserve it? Jesus says, that's what I did for you. You certainly didn't deserve it. But I laid my, down, my life down for you so you could know fellowship with me. So you could be given a faith that isn't just intellectual assent, but that really makes a difference in life. And here's your charge to go out and to live this life before others and let your light shine in darkness. Now, we fall short of that. One of the reasons that we celebrate this a lot is to acknowledge, we recognize that we aren't the people Christ calls us to be, but we want to be. This is kind of a recalibration time. Confess your sin. Receive Christ and the mercy and forgiveness he has and let it infuse you with strength and energy to live a life that's not just intellectual sin, but that really is actually, you're gonna have chances this week. You're gonna, would you look for them and see where can I put my faith into action. It may mean sacrifice. It may mean it may mean uh f- overcoming some fears, I don't know. But God says, "Do it." That's why I gave you this faith. Otherwise, you're riding a bike with no handle, with no brakes. And that's just plain dumb. And it also is injurious <laughs> in many respects. But Christ laid down his life for us. So, our custom is to pass out first the bread and then follow with uh here we have juice. To, to take it as one, so if you'd hold the elements to the end, that would be great. This is first and the body of Christ.